Welcome to the Sober Podcast, part of the Soberverse, created by the team at the Sober Network. The Sober Network has engaged in revolutionizing the treatment industry by creating its own token economy. We offer fresh ideas to an industry that has relied on dated interventions. We are responsive to a new generation of substance users who are attached to their phones so we can impact massive social change. Our unmatched technology displays solutions of our various brands, demonstrating a thorough understanding of how we get things done. We are proving that technology, along with incentivized human accountability, provides measurable and positive outcomes. Visit us at SoberNetwork.com. Welcome to the Sober Podcast, uh, brought to you uh, by Soberverse, brought to you by the Sober Network. This is your host, Jamie Brickhouse, and today we have Martin Lockett as our Sober Liberty guest today. Martin is a substance abuse counselor, author, public speaker, and advocate for reducing DUI fatalities. Thank you for joining us on the Sober Podcast. Martin, it's great to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for having me. It is truly an honor to be here. Really excited about today. Well, thrilled that you could join us and share your story and tell us what's going on with you these days. You have, speaking of, you have two books, uh, Prison to Purpose Pipeline and My Prison Life. Can you tell us a little about about those books? Sure. So the Prison to Purpose Pipeline is the memoir that I actually penned while I was still incarcerated. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was about halfway through my sentence, which we'll unpack a little bit uh, later in this interview. But it basically chronicles, you know, uh, from childhood where things were you know, reasonably normal. And then when the addiction started around 14, 15 years of age and how it it led to, a, 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 you know, um, a pretty grim spiral that resulted in two deaths and a man being physically disabled for the rest of his life. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, what would ensue would ultimately change the course of my life for the better, albeit in a, a prison cell for 17 and a half years. Wow. wow. And secondly, the, the second book, My Prison Life. Um, so while I was incarcerated, I developed a love for writing and I joined two or three prison-related blog sites out uh-huh. there. So I, I would blog for these sites. And then after I had accumulated so many, I took what I saw as the top 100 blogs that I had written about prison life and, you know, overcoming 
the difficulties of prison and maintaining right. a, a relationship with somebody on the outside from in prison and how prison affects families and communities and society at large. And I, I compile that into a collection of, of blogs for my second book, My Prison Life, a blogger's insights from the inside. So there you have it. Fantastic. And how old were you um, when you were incarcerated, when you when you uh, went to prison? I was 24 uh-huh. and uh, those numbers became uh, uh, inverse or transverse. Uh, I got out at 42. Mm-hmm. Oh, so. wow. Wow. But I mean, you what a journey. But um, uh, but it's a, it's so fantastic that you accomplished so much. And um, how did you get sober and how long have you been sober? Well, so that is there is obviously a story, probably part of the story, right? a, a story with that. So so briefly, I won't spend too much time on the background information. I, I really want to lead into the actual nuts and bolts of why I'm here. Sure. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 80s, and it looks vastly different today than it did then. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 80s, there were gangs coming up in California fighting for territory it was the the height of the crack epidemic that flooded, you know, impoverished and low income communities. And so there were these turf wars and drive by shootings seemingly every other night. There were, you know, uh, needles on the streets and prostitution. It was just a crime ridden community. But I had the good fortune of being raised by two loving, nurturing parents. So my dad worked to take care of us kids. I have a twin brother as well, two older mm-hmm. sisters. And dad took care of the, the the family. Mom, you know, did her part, obviously. And my dad had us enrolled in, you know, Cub Scouts and Little League and wrestling and Pop Warner football and all these activities to keep us from these negative influences of our right. environment. And it worked until I got to high school. And so I was a terribly shy kid. And like most kids, you get to high school, you don't want to be by yourself. So you're well, for me, anyway, you I was want to be a, part of the group. You have to be a part of a group. Right. It is a death sentence if you don't have anybody to hang out with. That is just that is just unbearable. And so it it put me at everybody else's mercy and I was willing to do whatever they needed me to do uh, uh, to be accepted. And so yeah. this led to me taking my first drink at 14 years of age. I remember I was at a party. We were hanging out with this guy who was wildly popular. All the girls loved him. All the guys feared him. He was also a gang member. Uh-huh. And um, we're hanging out with him at this party and he has my brother and me a beer and he goes off into the, the rambunctious crowd and and le- leaves us there with, with this alcohol. And we're looking at each other thinking there's no way we can drink this. Right. Mom and dad would absolutely kill us. But we also had done the mental calculation that if we're going to be hanging out with these cool kids, we got to drink. Right. It's just it's yeah. just no other way. So I remember I took a few swigs off of that disgusting liquid and my chest heated up is the first thing I felt. Mm-hmm. And then all my inhibitions came down and I could finally freely socialize without breaking out in a cold sweat. Right. <laughs> I, I could actually approach girls and talk to them without fumbling over my words. Well, probably there was some slurring going on, but yeah. I felt comfortable. It and was I, a solution to all your problems. It right? was a miracle. It was a miracle to all of my And so I could finally be the Martin that I've always wanted to be, but I, I felt I couldn't because he was buried in this, this shy, timid shell. And yeah. so that was my infatuation with alcohol for the for a couple years. But around age 16 is when things started to spiral in a much darker direction. And so at this point, 
I'm drinking more frequently, which means before school, mm-hmm. during lunch breaks, after school, we would steal alcohol from the corner store or get older people to buy it. Uh, we'd give them a dollar or two to buy it, buy it for us. And I'm drinking in isolation more and more. And so I, w- I remember I would literally come home from school with my 40 ounce of, of old English rock gut beer <laughs> and turn on some sad music and just drink. Yeah. I mean, it's 16 years of age because I was struggling mightily with my identity at that time. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with gang members and, and dressing the part and carrying a handgun and selling the crack cocaine on one hand to gain their acceptance. But then my parents also instilled in us the value of a hard earned dollar. So this meant mm-hmm. we had to have part time jobs, you know, after after school. And so I worked mm-hmm. in an ice cream parlor and all of my coworkers were white. And I would hang out with them when we would get off work. We would go yeah. shoot pool or go bowling. And I would literally bring a spare change of clothes, Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren Polo, <laughs> all this preppy gear right, to hang right. out with them, change my vernacular to fit in with them and, and, and to be accepted. And so I'm literally trying to navigate between two worlds yeah. and honestly not feeling like I, I was entirely accepted in either because I'm not being authentic. I'm not being myself. I didn't well, know who I in was. In either way, in either world, right? Exactly. And so but that- living the dual life. Oh, that conflict, yeah. exactly. That conflict was so overwhelming for me that, and I didn't have the coping skills and I didn't feel like a turn to anybody and, and openly express what was going on. So I just drowned it in, in, in brandy and, and beer and mm-hmm. cheap wine. And so that was when the alcoholism really manifested around age, age 16. Yeah. And and persisted for the next eight years until this this fatal uh, uh, crash happened. Great. I mean, not great, but uh, great that, you know, it, 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 we all have our bottoms and um, uh, but that you, um, you know, that you've come out of it um, after a lot of hard work and um, and, a, and a tough road. And um, I'm impressed by so much that you've accomplished um and not just you know the writing of two books but even before that um you got your both your bachelor's and your master's degrees in prison uh what was that like so why i was in prison is after drinking and driving all day on new year's eve of 2003 at uh 12 35 a.m. I sped through a red light. Mm-hmm. I crashed into a car. I killed two people. Mm-hmm. I severely injured another person. Mm-hmm. And three days later, I'm in my cell and I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper underneath my door or statewide newspaper. I couldn't understand why, because I didn't ask to see a paper. Nonetheless, I pick it up. I begin to thumb through this paper and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And with each paragraph that I read that morning for the first time in days, my faceless victims became people. And these people had an incredible story. Mm. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had managed to turn their lives around and were now helping others get clean and sober. Oh, my God. So, right. They would they would watch women's children so that these ladies could attend AA and NA meetings. They uh-huh. were volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, no less. Oh, my God. Man. And the night that this tragedy happened, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party at the convention center. 
when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. Mm. And so the columnist had had talked about the irony, he called it a palpable irony that these people who had who had devoted their lives to helping people get clean and sober would be killed by a drunk driver. Yeah. And here's what he said at the end of the article to change my life forevermore. He said, perhaps the person they would have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. <gasps> and so it was it was such a heavy statement. Right. But mm. there's also this uh, the other side of this coin where I know that at 24 years old, because I'm keenly aware of the mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the state of Oregon that require no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that absolutely require a mandatory day for day, 10 year sentence for a DUI manslaughter. And mm -hmm. I've got two of them. Uh -huh. So I know I'm going to prison for about 20 years. So I couldn't, I couldn't fully appreciate what he had just said and how the situation was possibly supposed to help me. But it was also a statement I couldn't ignore, right? Mm -hmm. So for the next seven or eight months, I would literally meditate on that phrase. I would hear it when I would wake up. I would hear it when I'm walking around the track in the afternoon. I would hear it when I'm going to sleep. And then it finally came to me, right? It didn't come from some vivid dream or, you know, some thunderous voice from the heavens or anything like that. But just the firm conviction within me that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies. Right. If I literally make it my life's mission to do everything I possibly can to ensure that something like this never happens again. And so in that moment, that's what I vowed to do. Now, I didn't know I didn't know how that would manifest. I didn't know how that would take shape. I didn't even know how long I was going to be in prison for. I knew it was going to be a long time, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how this would all unfold. And, and so but I knew I was committed to the cause. Yeah. And so several months later, I was sentenced to 17 and a half years uh, day for day. I took a plea bargain to avoid getting 28 and a half years had I gone right. to trial and and I set out on this mission. So I got the state prison. I figured, well, if I'm going to help people who are struggling with addiction, I should probably work on an education. I had a GED at the time. Mm -hmm. So I, I took what was offered. They offered one community college course at a time for 25 bucks. I figure if I take enough of them, maybe they'll give me a degree. I don't really know how this works, but hey, yeah. so I, I did that. And I, you know, I, I did that for about three years. And then my father passed away. And um, but in, in that happening, I was able to then get enough money to be able to finance my own education outside of the, you know, the prison setting. So I started taking courses from Louisiana State University and Indiana University. Yeah. And I parlayed all of that into an associate's degree in 2010 from Indiana. And, and then I got a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State in 2013. And then I went on to get a master's in psychology from California Coast University in 2016. So that was when I really started to unravel all of these youthful um, influences and indiscretions and motivations and behavioral patterns that I couldn't understand how I had developed over the years. But then it's starting to make sense from a sociological standpoint, standpoint from a psychological standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, from even a, a you know biochemical and 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 you know genetic predisposition standpoint, right? There's so many factors that that play into why we become who we become and how we get there. So it started to make sense. It, it, it's amazing, um, um, uh, an incredible story, an incredible journey, and we are going to um, take a second to for a quick commercial break, but we will be right back.
So everybody stay with us. The Sober Podcast is giving a voice to recovery and is now part of the Soberverse. Join our new virtual sober environment where you can connect with other people like yourself or find helpful resources on the following digital spaces. Soberverse.com, SoberNetwork.com, Sober.com, SoberSystems.com, SoberPodcast.com, SoberCoin.com, and RecoveryCoaches.com. We're back talking to Martin Lockett and Martin, um, you know, has been just uh, sharing his incredible journey um, through, you know, his bottom that landed him in prison. And and um, and you you told us how that the message of of uh, of the people um, in that car wreck, um, you know, led you to you know, getting sober and, and, and also to getting, um, an education, you accomplished so much in prison. Um, how long have you been out and what's it been like, um, since you regained freedom? So I was released last June, June of 2021. So I guess it's been about, I don't know, 16 months or so. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's, it's it's still an adjustment, obviously. I mean, technology has vastly, you know, changed and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, just culturally. I mean, I mean, when I went to prison, MySpace was the was the social media platform. Oh, yeah. And I had the little Nokia phone, the little push button phone. There were no cameras <laughs> on phones. And I mean, it's just it's just it's, it's a totally new world. Right. Right. And and so it's, it's, it's been an adjustment. Thankfully, I've had the the amazing support of friends and family who have helped me to adapt. But, um, you know, there's there, there, there have been some challenges. Uh, fortunately, because I had gotten my education and things like that, I was able to quickly land a job as, as a substance abuse counselor. I also work on the National Suicide Prevention Line, um, which is... Right. I love that. My bottom was um, it was a suicide attempt. So, right. Um, and uh, uh, I've done some work in that, a little work in that field. So I, I definitely um, applaud you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm not applauding, yeah, but just... Well, really, no. That's important work. That's well, important. absolutely. It really is. And to meet people where they are when they're at their, their lowest point and to mm-hmm. find a way to connect just on a human level and to show them that there is hope. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we all need hope. If we can hold on to hope, then it gives us it gives us a fighting chance. Right. Yeah. And and so and so I do that. I love it. I connect people with resources wherever they live, uh, in-person resources, online resources, free resources, insurance-based resources. And um, and so that's what I do in my as my nine to five. I also speak at DUI victim impact panels. I've spoken all throughout Oregon and I do them remotely every month with the trauma nurses talk tough at the hospital, actually, where my victims had had gone to at at the time of the crash. And I work with them and uh, I speak to first time DUI offenders every month, sometimes twice a month. I speak Mm -hmm. to kids who have gotten their first minor in possession charge that are just starting to go down that that treacherous road. And I, I, you know, try to intervene and and get them uh, to see things differently and, and change some behavior patterns. And then I'm uh, speaking in high schools this year. I've been invited to speak at a couple high schools this year in Pennsylvania. And um, and I'll be speaking at some panels here as well through the DA's office uh, who conduct their 
driver safety courses and things like that. So it's been busy. I've spoken on many podcasts and things like that. And I will forevermore, you know, propagate the message around drinking and driving, but also just, you know, um, you know, offering people the help and 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 the empathy and compassion and the resources that are needed to help them in their active addiction. Um, that is not a life that anybody would choose for themselves. Yeah. And and so, you know, when people are in that rock bottom moment, I think if they just have a hand up and have an ally with them who has been, you know, uh, uh, to such depths, then, you know, then there's hope and uh, and we get there together. Right. We don't do it in isolation. We do it in community. So I'm just honored and, and, and proud and glad to be a part of that community now. Yeah, I am. I'm I'm thrilled about uh, thrilled that you're doing it too. Great work. And how long you've been how, sober? How long? Uh, so it's now been a little over eighteen and a half years. Yeah. And so, and I'll say just just briefly. So a lot of people say that oh well, you know, the prison time doesn't really count. And you see it how you see it. But there, <laughs> there believe me, there was ample opportunity to From drink. What I've heard, I don't. Be- Right. That it's pretty easy to people. Listen, guys and women in prison are the most innovative (laughs) people you will find. There is a way to make anything out of the most raw material you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a way it will be found in prison. So people would make Pruno, uh, which is a jailhouse wine. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, from what I hear, utterly disgusting, but people <laughs> will do what they need to do to, to, right. to continue to feed the beast. Any length, right? Exactly. Thankfully, um, you know, I never, I never, uh, never succumbed to that. And even when the cravings were early on in my sentence and I was having these, these dreams and things like that, it was never overpowering to the point where I, I gave in because, the mission was so entrenched in me, right? When when I made this commitment at my sentencing, no less, media's there, newspapers, cameras, it's a packed courtroom, the victim's family members are there, heavy mm. victim impact statements have been given. And I stood up and I told the courtroom and everybody there that I would spend the rest of my life making sure that I did everything I could to prevent other families from feeling the utter devastation that they were feeling in that moment. Yeah. So when I when I took that on. There was nothing that was going to derail me. Absolutely nothing. And and I was missing focus uh, for 17 and a half years and beyond. So that's great. Um, what's the most difficult struggle you have been through uh, in sobriety and what how did you overcome it or how did you get through it? I would say so. This is this is ongoing. And it's setting boundaries with people, you know, people who are friends, mm-hmm. even family members, Those right? Because people to set boundaries with. Exactly, right? Because you don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers and you don't want to make people uncomfortable and things like that. And, you know, they're still drinking. They're still having a good time and doing the thing. And, you know, I don't want to seem like that odd guy out or odd woman out. But honestly, I look at it like this. As much as I am considering their feelings in in this exchange and, you know, that's all well and good, but my feelings and my sobriety are just as valid, right? They should not take a backseat to somebody else's feelings or how put off they might be because, you know, I'm like, hey, dude, I don't drink. Please don't offer me a drink. I would appreciate if you would, you know, go over there with your drink or, or however I frame it, right? That, you know, how they react is neither here nor there. Because there is nothing that is more important than my sobriety. 
and this mission that I'm on and the work that I do and the people I'm able to affect and all that goes away if I compromise for two minutes and take that first drink because all bets are off. Yeah. At, that, at that point, you know, good luck. Right. <laughs> and, and so and so I, I just keep that at the forefront. Having said that, it is not easy. It's easier because yeah. I've done it more and more, but it's not easy. Secondly, I am always I'm always conscious of the fact that, you know, I am one drink away from utter catastrophe. I don't care how long I've been sober. And so I keep that at the forefront because I also know myself and I know that the more things I achieve. Right. And the greater success that I have, I also allow myself to have excuses yeah. as to why I can compromise a little bit here, why I can slack off a little bit there. I still go to AA meetings. Right. It's mm -hmm. a meeting with all middle aged white dudes that are from rural <laughs> Pennsylvania. Right. That we otherwise probably wouldn't have a whole lot in common with. But guess yeah. what? We're all alcoholics in recovery. Yeah. So I know they get me there. I'm a white middle-aged dude and I have hey. a lot, and I haven't been to prison and I have a lot in common with you. And by the way, and I was, I was only, uh, I drove a lot drunk. Um, I, I've lived in New York since I was 22. And I used, and I always said that one of the greatest gifts was that I didn't have to drive anymore. I could I, just pour myself into a taxi, but I drove plenty before that. And I drove plenty of rental cars and other places. And, and it's a miracle that I didn't get a DU, DUI and or kill uh, someone else or my, or myself. Um, you thank know. goodness. So, you know, I was just, I was just one, you know, hair turn away from you. Right. Right. And many people are right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something we normalize. So but much more importantly than that though, I totally relate to what your feelings as an alcoholic and what alcohol did to you and or did for you. Um, right. and did to you because my journey, my journey is the same. It's the, it's the same. So. Absolutely. And so, you know, you know, I have I tell people all the time I have a twin brother and I love him to death and he's my best friend, but I cannot go to him for support when it refers and pertains to my alcoholism. Right. Yeah. Because he doesn't understand. Right. And that's fine. Right. We get the support we need from certain people in certain ways. But if I'm going to get support for this, then I got I got to be amongst other alcoholics in recovery. These are people who get me. These are my people. And the beautiful thing about AA is you can do it no matter where you are on this big green earth. That's right. <laughs> Seriously. And even more so. That's one of the biggest gifts of COVID is that now there are these Zoom meetings that I think are going to stay around. Exactly. For, you know, for the for the long haul, because they're so there's there's such a gift to. Absolutely. To so many. Well, listen, I could sit here and talk to you uh, for the rest of the day, Martin. Um, what an honor it is to uh, have had you on here sharing your story and uh, the amazing things you've accomplished uh, and that you're doing now. How can our listeners get in touch with you um, if they want to reach out? Well, thank you again so much for having me. This was this was uh, a great honor, and um, I hope the listeners do uh, take away some of the really important points made today. Uh, so mainly I'm on Instagram, which is at Martin L. Lockett, and then I've also got a website uh, at martinlockett.com is where people can find me. Okay, great. Um, any um, any shout-outs you want to um, to throw out there that we didn't cover? Uh, no, I just want to encourage anybody who oh, is. Oh, where can we find your books? So the books are either through the website, website or mm -hmm. just at Amazon. 
Okay. Um, and and I would just say for anybody who's you know kind of you know on the fence and wondering if they should take that leap uh, to get clean, I'll just say like in the famous beautiful words of Dr. King, you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. Just take the first step, and you're not alone. You can reach out. You can dial nine eight eight. And you will be connected wherever you are with somebody on the other end who will sit with you in that space. They will validate your feelings and they will offer you the resources necessary to get you to where you ultimately want to be. And we do this in, in community and in concert, not in isolation. So please reach out if you were thinking about uh, taking that step today. Beautifully said, Martin. It's been a true pleasure having you on. Thank you again. I'm Jamie Brickhouse, your host. Uh, you can find out about me on jamiebrickhouse.com. I'm the author of the memoir, Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of boo, sex, and my mother. And you can find me on TikTok at jamie underscore brickhouse, where I tell a true story every day wearing high heels. You got to have a gimmick. Anyway, um, Thank you so much again, Martin. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. This has uh, been the Sober Podcast. I'm your soul sober celebrity uh, host, Jamie Brickhouse, and we'll be back with another show next week. Signing off. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sober Podcast. We hope that you have found this episode helpful and look forward to you joining us next time. As we continue to grow and implement positive change, we hope that you'll share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. They can find us on all the major podcast directories. If you have an idea for the show, want to leave positive feedback, ideas, or comments, connect with us on thesoberpodcast.com. You can also reach us on our social media platform on The Soberverse. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to all those who make this show happen. Jamie Brickhouse, our host, Carrie, our producer, Carl Fessenden, our voice, and our sponsor, The Sober Network. Sober.